0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: The Library of Congress has been busy building an online collection of what are known as open access eBooks. The effort accelerated when the pandemic hit and people had more access to online books than to physical libraries. For more on this effort, the Digital Collections Development Coordinator, Rashi Joshi. Ms. Joshi, good to have you on.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: And Digital Collections Specialist, Christy Darby. Ms. Darby, good to have you on.
2: Thanks so
0: much. Good to be here.
1: First of all, tell us what is an open access ebook. These are titles that you might not find in your, you know, top of the list say at Amazon.
2: Sure. So an open access ebook is an ebook that lives on the web. Its open access content is material that's licensed for free and open use and redistribution. So this could be a work under an open license like Creative Commons. This is the content creator and the publisher publishing their works under an open license, which allows the library to acquire the content much more easily and redistribute it widely on our website, loc.gov.
1: So I'm guessing this is mostly nonfiction type work or academic and peer-reviewed types of material,
0: Christian. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they are high quality. They're peer-reviewed titles. They span myriad subjects. We have books on history, philosophy, music, life sciences, mathematics, religion, economics. So most of them are nonfiction. We do have about 50 works of fiction in the collection. Some of these are new editions of classics that have been republished. And we also have some contemporary fiction in there. So there are authors who are publishing their fiction works under these licenses.
1: And what about, you mentioned the classics, just out of curiosity, is there a point in history at which some of the classics become public domain, like Don Quixote, for example?
2: Yes. So when an item falls out of copyright or if it's not protected by copyright law, then it becomes public domain. A lot of U.S. government works are in the public domain. So we have a host of acquisition specialists that are trained in identifying works that fall under the public domain. And those are in scope for this open access books collection.
1: And in some ways, that's a greater responsibility than something that has been published contemporary, because you want to make sure that the texts of a Don Quixote, which I read decades ago, is preserved in a way that is sacrosanct, that someone can't kind of reissue it under some crazy label and change the text for whatever political bias they might want to introduce.
2: Sure. So everything that's going into this open access books collection is being reviewed by acquisition specialists to make sure that the terms of redistribution are appropriate and that we can provide wide access to the content on our website.
1: Now the library also had a link to the catalog of these public domain ebooks. So what is the value added of the library publishing these in a collection available to the public versus just going to that catalog?
0: That's a good question. We think about it in terms of enduring access. So when we take these files, we put them into managed storage. We have them available in whatever digital perpetuity means. <laughs> They're always available and then We have our catalog records that we add these links, they're persistent links, so they won't change. So anybody who has Library of Congress records will have the link to this content. It will always be there and it will always be available. So, you know, the web is a shifting, changing thing. We don't always know where things are going to end up, but we feel very comfortable that we are providing that enduring access for this content.
2: Yeah, and there's so much unique and high research value and ephemeral open access content on the web. By acquiring the files for this content and hosting them on library platforms, we are making a commitment to preserving and providing enduring access to this content to the American public.
1: We're speaking with Rashi Joshi. She's a Digital Collections Development Coordinator and with Christy Darby, Digital Collections Specialist, both in the Digital Content Management section at the Library of Congress. And what does it require? What kind of effort is needed? Is it simply transferring the file from the catalog and putting it under an LOC URL, or does it take more than that?
0: It's a surprising amount of work behind the scenes, so we definitely have to acquire those files. We have to create thumbnails, so on our website, people will be able to see at a glance what we have. We work on those catalog records with our cataloger specialist in the Acquisitions and Bibliographic Access Directorate. We work with Rashi's division. So it takes a lot of coordination across the library, a lot of people doing their part to bring it online. We work with our Office of the Chief Information Officer to support our technical infrastructure. So it's a lot of moving parts, but we have worked over the past several years to build this workflow from the ground up and then over the course of the pandemic we've really been able to kind of refine it and now we kind of have it it's a it's a well-oiled machine
1: got it and is there any vetting of the material i mean suppose someone got something into the catalog that really is false or you know known to be contrary to I don't know, say the, the world is dipped in ether or something like that. I mean, there's still people that believe there's ether out in space. You wouldn't probably want to support that or you just put it all on and let people make their own judgment.
2: So we have a very broad collecting mission. The library's mission is to engage, inspire, and inform Congress and the American people with a universal and enduring source of knowledge and creativity. So this is a broad collecting mission. We cover all subjects except for clinical medicine and technical agriculture, which are covered by the National Library of Medicine and the USDA National Agricultural Library. So as I mentioned, the collection mission is broad. The collection is universal in terms of subjects, but it's not comprehensive. So to help our subject, matter experts do selection of content. There's a lot more content out there than we can collect. We have something we call collection policy statements. We have over 70 of these. These are a subject and format focused. So when a subject expert is assessing content for potential inclusion in our permanent collections, they're referring to these collection policy statements. These are collaboratively developed by subject experts. They're revised periodically, and they're all available on our website for the public to access
1: and what has been the take up of this collection so far? I mean, how many people do you measure the success of whether anyone's reading this stuff?
0: We do. Every month we get a report to see what has been downloaded, what has been viewed, where the folks are who are viewing it, and it's always really exciting to see. It's been growing every month. Right now we have about 10,000 downloads a month, and the users, we have lots of users from the United States, of course, but We also have lots of users from Western Europe. We have lots of users in South America, lots of users in India. So it's been really interesting to see sort of how this has grown. Every month, it seems we get about a thousand more viewers, a thousand more users. So we've been tracking that over time. We'll continue to do that.
1: Do you get downloads, say, to China or Russia or North Korea?
0: We definitely get them to China and Russia. I don't know that I have seen North Korea on our list yeah, absolutely, they are downloading our content.
1: And if there are 10,000 downloads in a month, is it 9,000 of one title or is it kind of across the board at the appeal of the collection?
0: It's a little bit across the board. We always have a top five, you know, the ones that really rise to the top. Very often they will be educational titles. We can tell that it looks as if a lot of educators have been hitting the collection, especially over the pandemic, which is really exciting. We also have, as part of this collection, a collection of children's books from South Africa. So these are born digital children's books. They were not digitized, and they were totally created online. And those get a lot of use too, which is really exciting because it sort of points to this collection being for everyone. You know, it's not just Career scholars who are using this, you know, teachers, parents, children are also using this. So that's always really exciting.
1: And if someone wanted to create a book digitally to put in the domain, does it have to be in the catalog from which you drew it or can you send it directly to the Library of Congress?
2: Uh, certainly not. So we started by looking at the directory of open access books because it was a large repository of peer reviewed academic open access books and certainly not all books in the directory are in scope for our collections. So we are aiming big. We're not only looking at specific repositories, but any open access and openly available ebooks on the web that are in scope for collecting as per our collection policy statements.
1: So someone that wants to get those 10,000 download access, they need to first check out the policy to see if it's even something you'll accept. Yes.
2: So there is a donations form on the library's website. Public can also connect with a reference librarian. So the reference librarian is the real subject matter expert who will be assessing content to see if it's in scope for the permanent collection or not.
1: And I'm just wondering, do you have a sense of how the publishing landscape is changing. I mean, there have always been self-published books since there were books, as opposed to the trade titles, you know, the Nops and so forth of the world, is more and more coming into the reading public via not the standard publishers that have their editors that vet and have their policies, but this kind of new way of self-publishing that's also not print and also not the famous publisher's.
2: Sure, the landscape of ebooks and publishers is continuously evolving, and we are new to collecting open access ebooks, so we are learning as we go. So, you know, there's a whole diversity of publishers represented, and right now we have about 3,400 open access ebooks in this collection in 50 languages, 100 countries of publication represented. We expect these numbers to only keep growing and not in terms of just the languages and countries of publication represented, but the types of publishers, individual content creators and other types of publishers.
1: And on the just technical front, do the formats that you have allow for mobile reading and mobile device reading?
0: Yes, absolutely. So we have PDFs for a lot. So a PDF is a very common format and epubs as well which is you know an increasingly common format it's very common for ebooks and those can be downloaded you can read them right on the library's website but anybody is free to download those and then read them at their leisure on their ebook reader on their phone on their computer all of those are available for download
1: and what about the accessibility questions is there a read verbal version available or is that a technology you're thinking about
0: it is and epubs are a great way because those are essentially kind of big html files so You can read the text within it. Um, A PDF is really an image. So we do have a growing number of EPUBs available.
1: Because I was thinking for South African children's novels, you could probably get famous actors to read them gratis versus having (laughs) some sort of robotic voice generation (laughs) read them out.
0: (laughs) That would be lovely. (laughs) There's a free idea for you. to see what
1: Hollywood (laughs) thinks about that. And a final tech question. Is all of this searchable and keyword findable? And because 3400 and that catalog has thousands and thousands more. And so there's really no limit to how big this can get.
0: One thing that we pride ourselves on at the Library of Congress is really great bibliographic description. And these books are cataloged, they are available with subject headings, and they are fully searchable in the catalog and on the website. So people can search them by title, by subject, by author, by publisher, and they're integrated into the library's catalog as well. So they're there with everything else.
1: Well, I'm going to check them out myself. Christy Darby is digital collections specialist and Rashi Joshi is digital collections development coordinator, both in the digital content management section at the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so
0: much, Tom.
1: We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture-Backed Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access
4: black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact and having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for
3: themselves. I I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington post post, Uh, interview and it, it you were amazing and it it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEpa is growing as well and you are so spot on we have as as leaders we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then Let them roll. And that's not always easy.
2: This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you've entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.